Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. I feel uh, Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 154 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 7, The Crew. Radio Moscow suddenly triggers the worrisome guessing game anew by announcing that the Soviet spacecraft Zond 5 has splashed down in the Indian Ocean on September 21st after an unmanned flight in which it whipped around the moon, though without entering moon orbit. At Cape Kennedy, Wally Shira, the nerveless veteran of superb Mercury and Gemini flights, Mr. Cool himself, suddenly finds himself at age 45 feeling a little old and tired. The 18-hour-a-day grind, the separation from his family, have taken out all the fun. Yes, he's having a ball. What lifted Wally's spirit so dramatically is the brilliant launch on October 11th of Apollo 7 atop the well-proven Saturn 1B. It's our first manned flight since Gus Grissom and his crew were killed in the fire on the same launch pad 21 months ago. Another serious failure would have all but erased hope of landing an American on the moon by the end of 1970. In 1966, before the Apollo 1 fire, a number of astronauts were assigned to crew positions on Apollo. On March 21st, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were picked to man the first flight. On September 29th, Walter Sherall, Don Isley and Walter Cunningham were named for the second manned flight. Up to that point, keeping track of assignments was not difficult, but it soon changed. If the Grissom group circled the Earth for up to 14 days, why should Sherall's group need to do the same thing? So Sherall's flight was canceled in December 1966, and his team was assigned as backups for Grissom's. Immediately after the Apollo 1 fire in January 1967, Administrator Webb canceled all crew assignments. On May 9th, however, as NASA began to recover from the tragedy, he told the Senate Space Committee that Sherall, Isley, and Cunningham would fly the first manned Apollo mission. Sherall's group, Webb told the Senators, was on its way to the Downey plant to start a detailed day-by-day, month-by-month association 
with the Block 2 spacecraft number 101. Now, let's meet the astronauts. Inside the capsule are astronauts Wally Schirra, Don Isley, and Walt Cunningham. It was exactly, almost exactly, six years ago that Wally Schirra piloted his Mercury spacecraft six times around the globe. Then, spaceflight was in its infancy. About three years ago, he maneuvered the Gemini 6 into a nose-to-nose -nose rendezvous with Gemini 7, an amazing accomplishment for a space program in its adolescence. And now, this same human being is piloting the test flight of Apollo, a spacecraft designed with some place to go, the moon. A space program and a career coming of age together. Don Isley and Walt Cunningham are both space rookies. They haven't flown before, but perhaps six years from now, they'll be able to look back on an equally illustrious history. I'm sure everyone recalls Wally Sherall from his Mercury and Gemini flights. His biography has already been covered on previous episodes, but here's a quick refresher. Walter Marty Sherall Jr., also known as Wally, was born on March 12, 1923 in Hackensack, New Jersey. Sherall graduated from Dwight W. Morrow High School in Inglewood, New Jersey in June 1940. He studied aeronautical engineering at the Newark College of Engineering from 1940 to 42. In 1942, he was appointed to the United States Naval Academy and received a Bachelor of Science degree on June 6, 1945. Upon graduation, he was commissioned in the Navy as an ensign and assigned to the Armored Battle Cruiser Alaska, which was bound for Japan. But the war had ended by the time he arrived. On February 23, 1946, he was married to Josephine Cook Frazier, and later that year, he was assigned to the staff of the 7th Fleet in the Pacific. In 1948, after completing pilot's training at Pensacola, he was designated a naval aviator and assigned to Fighter Squadron 71 as an exchange pilot with the 154th Fighter Bomber Squadron. During the Korean War, he flew 90 combat missions in F-84E jets, mainly low-level bombing and ground strafing operations. He was credited with downing at least one MiG and possibly a second one. From 1952 to 1954, Sherall served as a test pilot at the Naval Ordnance Training Station at China Lake, California, where he took part in the development of the Sidewinder air-to-air -air missile. During one test flight, after he had launched the Sidewinder from his jet, the missile doubled back in the direction of his plane, and Sherall had to use great skill to evade it. From 1954 to 56, he was a project pilot for the F-7U-3 Cutlass jet fighter and instructor pilot on the Cutlass and the FJ-3 Fury. In 1956 and 57, he flew the F-3H-2N Demons as operations officer of Fighter Squadron 124 on board the aircraft carrier Lexington in the Pacific. In 1957, he attended the Naval Air Safety Officer School at the University of Southern California, 
1958 and 59, he completed test pilot training at the Naval Air Test Center at Patuxent River, Maryland, and was assigned to suitability development work on the F-4H jet fighter there. He remained there until he was chosen for Project Mercury as one of the original seven astronauts, the Mercury 7. He flew a textbook flight on the six-orbit, nine-hour Mercury Atlas 8 mission on October 3, 1962, becoming the fifth American and the ninth human to ride a rocket into space. In December 1965, in the Gemini program, he achieved the first space rendezvous by station-keeping his Gemini 6A spacecraft within one foot of the Gemini 7 spacecraft. Now, a little more about Wally's personality. Mike Collins, in his book, Carrying the Fire, described Wally as, quote, Oh, ho, ho. He could make a good living playing Santa Claus in a department store. This affability is backed up by a larger-than-life ego. But, you have to admit, he is the only one to fly on all three of the series, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo. His Apollo flight was especially gutsy, coming after a fatal fire, but then the spacecraft wouldn't dare blow up with Wally on board. End quote. By the time Apollo 7 rolled around, Sherall definitely had some clout. For example, Wally, like most of the Mercury and Gemini astronauts, had come to gain a sense of security from the pad leader responsible for the spacecraft's launch readiness, an extremely diligent, uncompromising McDonnell Aircraft employee named Gunter Vint. But since the Apollo contractor was North American Aviation, Vint no longer was pad leader. After the Apollo 1 accident, Sherall felt so strongly he wanted none other than Vent as the pad leader for his Apollo flight. So, he pulled strings with his boss, Deke Slayton, and North American's launch operations manager, Bastian Hello, to hire Vent so he could be Apollo 7 pad leader. As a side note, Vent remained pad leader for the remainder of the Apollo and Skylab programs and stayed on with NASA into the space shuttle program before retiring. Apollo 7 was Wally's last light. For more information on Sherall, listen to episodes 16, 17, and 35. Okay, let's meet the rest of the crew. The other two crew members were rookies and, as such, were unfamiliar to many people at the time. Don Isley was chosen to be the command module pilot and Walt Cunningham was chosen to be the lunar module pilot, even though there would not be a lunar module on the Apollo 7 flight. The rookies were assigned to the Apollo 7 shakedown flight because Deke Slayton head of the astronaut office and the man behind crew assignments felt that they were perfectly competent, but generally weaker than some of their colleagues. Neither was likely to fly a second flight. Slayton was planning to transfer both of them to the Apollo Applications Program in short order. Now, 
let's get to know Don Isley. Don Fulton Isley was born June 23, 1930 in Columbus, Ohio, and graduated from the West High School in 1948. He received a Bachelor's of Science degree from the United States Naval Academy in 1952 and chose a commission in the United States Air Force. Isley received a Master of Science degree in Astronautics from the U.S. Air Force Institute of Technology at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, in 1960. Following his graduation from Annapolis and joining the Air Force, Isley went to flight training at Goodfellow Air Force Base, Texas, Williams Air Force Base, Arizona, and Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida. After receiving his wings in 1954, Isley served in Willis Air Base, Libya, from 54 to 1956. He attended and graduated from the Aerospace Research Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, California, in 1961. Isley was a project engineer and experimental test pilot at the Air Force Special Weapons Center at Kirkland Air Force Base, New Mexico. He flew experimental test flights in support of special weapons development programs. He logged more than 4,200 hours flying time, 3,600 of it was in jet aircraft. Isley was part of NASA's third group of astronauts selected in October 1963. Each member of the third group of astronauts was assigned an area of specialization by Alan Shepard. Isley's assigned specialization was attitude and translation controls. Now, let me digress a minute to explain what that means. Attitude meaning the orientation of a spacecraft relative to its direction or motion, or more simply put, the way the spacecraft is pointed. Translation meaning moving through space, whether it be up, down, left, or right. You see, a spaceship flies with both hands. The left grasps a translation hand controller, the right an attitude hand controller. Between the two, all maneuvers are possible. The left controller sticks out of the instrument panel in the shape of a T. It can be pushed in, out, up, down, or left, and right. And the spacecraft will respond moving in the corresponding direction. This is done by firing thrusters on the appropriate side of the spacecraft to cause the motion. The right hand controls attitude functions similarly to a stick in an airplane. Pull back to pitch up, push forward to rotate the nose down. Left to roll left, right to roll right. Since the spacecraft is too crowded to afford the luxury of rudder pedals, yaw is built into the right controller. It works in such a fashion that rotating your hand left or right causes a yaw motion similar to pressing left or right rudder pedals in an airplane. And finally, there is the switching panel. This is where the rate gyros and dead bands are added to the control stick in such a fashion that the pilot can choose to be more or less a part of an elaborate autopilot network. For example, he can arrange the switches in such a fashion that when he removes his hand from the right hand stick, 
he commands a zero rate and the spacecraft will stay fixed in inertial space, gyro-stabilized, firing its thrusters as necessary to continue pointing in exactly the same direction within the limits of the selected dead band. If the switches are not so selected, the unattended spacecraft will wander off and point wherever the laws of physics say it should. The first scheme is better for control, but at the expense of fuel consumption. In some situations, tight attitude control is a necessity, in others, a luxury. It is the pilot's job, before all others, to determine how best to put these conflicting requirements together, how to fly to the moon within a minimum of thruster firing, saving fuel for rendezvous, while still retaining critical mission phases such as docking. This was Don Isley's specialization. Moving on, in early 1966, Isley was selected as pilot for the Apollo 1 crew along with command pilot Gus Grissom and senior pilot Edward H. White. But, after dislocating his shoulder twice during training, Isley was replaced with Roger Chaffee. After corrective surgery in January 1966, Isley was named to the crew for the second manned Apollo flight with command pilot Wally Sherall and Walter Cunningham. At this time, Isley was promoted to the senior pilot position. The easy-going Isley's performance as an astronaut is hinted at by Deke Slayton in his autobiography when he notes that his original intention was to try out some of the guys who he thought weaker on the Apollo 1 mission. Deke's original rotation had Don Isley and Roger Chaffee as the senior pilot and pilot working for Gus Grissom. Had it not been for the fact that Isley damaged his shoulder during a zero-G training flight aboard a KC-135 aircraft just before Christmas 1965, he might have been in the senior pilot's seat aboard Apollo 1 instead of Ed White. Instead, Slayton considered it easier to swap Isley for White the latter of whom was previously attached to Wally Sherall's original Apollo 2 crew. Now, Walter Cunningham speculated in his autobiography that the changes in crew assignments were to allow Deke Slayton, who was grounded with a medical condition, a flight to command. Sherall would be essentially a caretaker commander, standing in until Slayton received medical clearance. But, Sherall refutes the story. He is quoted as saying, Walt might have said that, but I would never have done that. Walt has lots of little fanciful ideas like that, once in a while. My wife said about Walt that he is like a puppy dog. Keep scratching him and he'll be nice. I stopped scratching him, and boy, he got nasty. But he's all right, really. End quote. There was something else happening that threatened the chances of Don Isley flying on the Apollo 7 flight. 
It was becoming obvious within NASA that Don Isley was having an affair that might lead to a divorce. Deke Slayton had warned all the astronauts that they were expendable, and any extramarital affairs were never to make it into the papers. The only astronaut who had filed for divorce, Dwayne Graveline, had been thrown out of NASA so fast that he never even appeared in his group's official photo. Additionally, a nagging shoulder injury and a potential divorce weren't Isley's only issue on his path into space. His surname had been mildly problematic as well. No one seemed to know how to pronounce it. It should be pronounced like Isley. Variations were both abundant and creative, and nothing changed when he joined NASA. At one point in Apollo 7's training, the crew went to NASA's Machode facility in Mississippi where the Saturn boosters were being built. Administrator Jim Webb introduced the crew to President Johnson, and when he came to Isley, he stumbled over the astronaut's surname. He pronounced it as Isel. From that point on, Sherall decided Isley would be known simply as What's his name? When Webb publicly announced the crew assignment on May 9, 1967, he pronounced all three surnames correctly, and when the mission launched on October 11, 1968, Isley's name was similarly pronounced correctly by both NASA representatives and newscasters. But within the agency, the nickname stuck. The Apollo 7 crew was known to their support and ground crews as Wally, Walt, and What's-His-Name. To make things worse, photographs from the launch day breakfast with Isley's What's-His-Name coffee mug front and center will preserve his somewhat unfortunate nickname for the ages. In Mike Collins' book, he described Isley as, quote, lost in Wally Sherall's shadow on Apollo 7, end quote. But through it all, Isley remained on the crew as the Apollo 7 command module pilot. Since this was Isley's only flight, I will break tradition and continue his biography. Isley served as backup command module pilot for the 1969 Apollo 10 flight, but he was excluded from Apollo 13, because of his reluctance to interrupt their test aboard Apollo 7 for public television coverage NASA requested, and for the extramarital affair that had almost caused his replacement. Isley resigned from the astronaut office in 1970 and became technical assistant for manned spaceflight at the NASA Langley Research Center a position he occupied until retiring from both NASA and the Air Force in 1972. In July 1972, Isley became country director of the U.S. Peace Corps in Thailand. Returning from Thailand, two years later, he became sales manager for Marion Power Shovel, a division of Dresser Industries. Isley then handled private and corporate accounts for the investment firm of Oppenheimer & Company. He also participated in the 1986 Concord Comet chase flights out of Miami and New York.
Sadly, Isley died at the age of 57 from a heart attack on a 1987 business trip to Tokyo, Japan, where he was to attend the opening of a new space camp patterned on the one at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. He was survived by his widow, Susan, their two children, and three of his four children from his previous marriage to Harriet. Isley was cremated in Japan, and his ashes were buried in Arlington National Cemetery. During his life, Isley was an Eagle Scout, a member of Tau Beta Pi, and a Freemason, belonging to the Luther B. Turner Lodge No. 732 in Columbus, Ohio. Among the honors he received during his career were the NASA Exceptional Service Medal, the Air Force Senior Pilot Astronaut Wings, and the Air Force Distinguished Flying Cross. In 2008, NASA posthumously awarded Isley the NASA Distinguished Service Medal for his Apollo 7 mission. Now let's meet the final member of the Apollo 7 crew, Walter Cunningham. Ronnie Walter Cunningham was born in Creston, Iowa, on March 16, 1932. He graduated from Venice High School in Venice, California, where a building has since been named for him. After high school, Cunningham joined the U.S. Navy in 1951 and began flight training in 1952. He served as an active duty pilot with the U.S. Marine Corps from 1953 to 1956. From 1956 to 1975, he served in the Marine Corps Reserve Program, ultimately retiring at the rank of Colonel. Cunningham received his Bachelor of Arts degree with honors in 1960 and his Master of Arts degree with distinction in 1961. Both degrees were in physics from the University of California at Los Angeles. He then worked as a scientist for the RAND Corporation while pursuing a doctorate. In October 1963, Cunningham was chosen as one of the third group of astronauts selected by NASA. Being a member of the third group of astronauts, Cunningham was also assigned an area of specialization by Alan Shepard. Walt Cunningham's specialization was electrical and sequential non-flight experiments. Now I will digress once more to explain what that means. The sequential system, as its name implies, was designed to control certain events which took place in inalterable sequence, one after the other. On Gemini, for example, one gets out of orbit by firing the retros in sequence. This consists of 1. Maneuvering to retro altitude 2. Switching power to 4 main batteries 3. Activating the re-entry control system. 4. Firing a guillotine to chop fuel lines leading aft to the adapter section. 5. Firing another guillotine to chop the electrical lines leading aft. 6. Separating the spacecraft from the now unneeded adapter section. 7. Firing the retro rockets. and 8. Jettisoning the retro rocket package. The sequential system served as an aid and monitor in the process by illuminating amber lights in sequence at the proper time. The main thing here was to ensure reliability, which usually meant redundant circuit design, 
and whenever possible to think up swift alternative courses of action in case of a malfunction. The electrical system includes the fuel cells which generate electrical power by combining oxygen and hydrogen, getting water as a byproduct. The water produced by a fuel cell is supposed to be pure, but on Gemini it was contaminated by organic particles, aptly nicknamed furries. These furries turned the water the color of strong coffee and raised havoc with iron-stomached men. On Apollo, a different type of fuel cell actually did produce portable water, a vital savings of weight on a lunar mission since a separate drinking water supply was not required. And that was Walt Cunningham's specialization. But what was Cunningham's personality like? Well, once again we turn to Mike Collins in his book. He summed up Cunningham as, quote, outspoken, blunt, with a small chip on his shoulder, a strange mixture of marine fighter pilot and RAND corporate research scientist, a complex man alternating between genuine warmth and outright hostility, end quote. Walt Cunningham was assigned the title of Lunar Module Pilot for Apollo 7, even though there was no lunar module in the stack. Apollo 7 was Cunningham's only spaceflight. During his career, he accumulated more than 4,500 hours of flying time, including 3,400 in jet aircraft and 263 hours in space. After Apollo 7, he worked in a management role for Skylab until he left NASA in 1971. In 1974, Cunningham graduated from Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program and later worked as a businessman and investor in a number of private ventures. In 1977, he published The All-American Boys, a reminiscence of his astronaut days. Cunningham composed the text for the book himself without the help of a ghostwriter. He was also a major contributor and forward writer for the 2007 space history book In the Shadow of the Moon. In 2008, NASA awarded Cunningham the NASA Distinguished Service Medal for his Apollo 7 mission. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.